Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9. The majority of our texts will be coming from this chapter. Familiar story to us. As we will get to that in just a moment. I'll add my welcome to you all. Thank you all for being here and uh, braving the elements. We have someone here who lives in Alaska, so I'm sure he's getting quite a chuckle at the elements that we here in beautiful central Florida think are, are somewhat uh, <laughs> debilitating. But it's all about rel- relativity, right? It's about what, what you're used to. But I'm also reminded of what our Lord says about God the Father, how he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So go out there and get wet. So you'll be okay either way. Uh, it's good to be here. It's a blessing to have rain come from, from the heavens and sunshine to follow. And it makes us... Glad uh, to see God's beauty around us, so take heart in that. I want to speak this morning, as I mentioned, from John chapter 9. This is a familiar passage to us. This is about our Lord healing a blind man, a man who had been blind from birth. And we remember the story how our Lord... um, We'll, we'll just a, a quick review here. He'll spit on the ground and he'll make a mud out of, out of that and he'll put it on the man's eyes and he'll tell him to go wash. And the man comes back and now he can see. As a way of introduction, just think about that for just a moment. This man had been born blind. He'd never seen anything in his life. And this man, who he doesn't know, tells him to go do this and he does and he comes back and he can see. Now, I would say that was a very eye-open experience, but that would be a cheap pun, so I won't say that. But think about what this man must have, uh, have experienced, and we'll see as, as the story ends where his faith ends up as a result of, of what he has seen. But there's some lessons that we can learn along the way, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the miracle itself. We're going to look at... Uh, some of the inner workings of, of, of the Pharisees and what's going on um, with this miracle in mind and what all the implication is. And then we're going to look at the, at the end, at, uh, as we often do, at the application, what it, what it meant to the people, the immediate context, and, and what it means to us as, as children of God. So if you're there in John chapter 9, we're not going to read all of this accounting because it is rather lengthy, but... We are going to start off with, with some reading here in John chapter 9. And let's first consider um, the miracle itself. And that takes place early on in, in the few verses here. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 9. It says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made a clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam which translated means sent. 
And so he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Verse 10, Therefore, they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. There's a lot of interesting things that happen in these few verses. But as we open up, there's a question here that the disciples ask. And, and they say, Rabbi, in verse 2, Rabbi, who is it that sinned that caused this man to be blind? Him or his parents? Now, isn't that an interesting question? Where, where, where are their minds? But we might understand and, and give a little bit of credence to that. But our Lord sets it straight very quickly. And look what he says there in verse 3. He says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. So we can see all, already what Jesus said. It's not um, this man sinned. It's not someone else's sin. And we think about that. Not someone else's sin. Are we responsible for someone else's sin? I hope not. Don't you hope that? <laughs> I got enough problems of my own. I don't need someone else's sins for, to be imputed to me. We read passages like Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. Reminds us about sin and, and how sin is imputed. It says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You see, I'm responsible for my sin. And I'm responsible for my righteousness. It doesn't go any further than that. I don't pass that on down to my children. I, wasn't, I didn't receive it from my father. It makes it very clear here. The soul who sins shall die. So... In their thinking, they're, they're, they're wondering why, that maybe something happened and this man um, is born blind because of sin. Jesus says that's not, that's not the case at all. It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. He mentions here that it's not his own sin. Another thing that they might be thinking is that he had done something. How could he have done something to... to to cause himself to be blind if he was born that way. Helps us to understand about inherited sin, doesn't it? There are some in the world that teach that we inherit sin. And that's why they teach infant baptism, that infants must be washed of that sin that they've inherited from their parents. It's not the case at all. The verses we just mentioned help to prove that. It's the one who sins who's responsible for his or her sin. It's not handed down to us just by a manner of being born. But then Jesus goes on to say there, um, it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's um, an interesting statement there as well. You mean to tell me this man was born blind so that this very moment could happen and, and Jesus could heal him and, and then the, the works of God shall be displayed? what scripture says 
It was to demonstrate God's power and thereby his providence. We talk about God's providence a lot. What does it mean? It means, you know, his hand works in the lives of, of everyone in the world. And especially in the lives of his children. Sometimes we, we step back and say that, you know, God's not active in our lives and doesn't guide our steps. And there, there, there's some truth in that, and it's especially when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, how the work of the Holy Spirit has changed over time. But let's not ever think that God is not in control of his creation. And let's not ever think that his providence is not on display every day. How things happen, how things unfold. I'm reminded of uh, the story in the book of Esther. I remember how Esther was placed in the, in the king's court and she had an opportunity to help out the children of God. And remember that, that verse there in, in chapter 4 and verse 14 when Mordecai is speaking to her. And he says, For if you remain completely silent in this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. In that instance, Mordecai is is not sure about God's will as far as the instances that are taking place right now. But he reminds Esther, maybe this is what you're here for. When our Lord speaks, he tells us exactly what's happening. He tells us exactly that the events that are transpiring right now are to demonstrate God's will and to demonstrate his power. And then in verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He's reminding them that the sun is setting on the day. He's, he's, he's speaking of a time when we'll pass from this earth and we won't be able to do the works of God because we'll have died and, and left this world. So he's reminding us that we need to work while we are here. And that's what he's saying he's doing. He's working while he is here. And there's going to become a time when he's going to be taken away. There's something interesting in in the way that Jesus chooses to um, cure this man. Now, this is not the only blind man that that Jesus cures. There's there's several instances, and this is just a a few of them. Uh, In Matthew 9 and also in in chapter chapter 20, he touched a couple of the men's eyes, and their their sight was restored. In Mark 8, the man there at Bethsaida, he cured his blindness by spitting and touching his eyes. And then in Mark 10, uh, the account there of uh, Bartimaeus, uh, his sight was was restored simply by Jesus saying, your sight is restored. So Jesus cured this in different ways. So when we look and say that he has to do it the same way every time, when we look at those other accounts and say, well, why did he do it this way in that account and didn't do it this way? over here. Let's remember who we're talking about. We're talking about God in the flesh. He can choose whatever means he wants to to perform these miracles. And it's up to his choosing as to what he does. But in this way, and what he's doing here, he tells this man who has never seen before in his life and doesn't know who Jesus is, he tells him to, to go and do something, and this man goes and does it. And his sight is restored. Maybe there's something about this man that Jesus knew that he had to put him into action. 
Not simply just restore his sight, but give him something to do. Tells us a little bit about our working faith, doesn't it? You know, our faith is a working faith. There are things that we have to do because of our commitment and our faith to God. There are things we have to do. Some in the world will teach that we can't do anything. And they will, they will slough off works as, as something that cannot save us. And in a way, that's right. There's nothing in and of ourselves we can do to save us. But God has provided things for us to do. So ours is a working faith. In um, thinking about how Jesus uh, performed this miracle and, and um, what this all means, I want to hearken back to Matthew chapter 12. I read this just a moment ago as part of our scripture reading. Go back there with me to Matthew chapter 12. You know, these things aren't, don't just happen in a vacuum, and, and our Lord's ministry is not just happenstance, as we just mentioned there. He said that these things happen to demonstrate the power of God. Here in Matthew chapter 12, I read starting in verse 18, but back up to verse 15. It says, But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them to make, uh, not to make him known in order that what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one. I won't read all that again. But what Matthew is calling attention to here is that fact that there was prophecy about this coming man. There was going to be a man that came to earth and he was going to be able to heal people. And he was going to have the power of God. This harkens back to Isaiah chapter 42. As, as Matthew is quoting from that, look back up in, in verse 1 of, of Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant who I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is the same context that Matthew is quoting from here. And this is obviously clearly a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And down in verse 7, the first part of verse 7 of, of Isaiah 42, it says, To open blind eyes. So we see it's not just a happenstance or, or not just Jesus' compassion, although it tells us clearly that he felt compassion upon people and he fed them and he healed them and he did those things. This is also to fulfill prophecy that this man was coming and that this man would have this power and demonstrate who he was by these things that he would accomplish. So Jesus accomplished this miracle and and as with a lot of uh, the things in Jesus' life, it was not without controversy. There was controversy about this miracle. Go back to John chapter 9 now. We'll pick back up in verse 13. Again, we're not going to read all of this. But we're going to see that there was uh, a group, and we know that group well, called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees held high positions amongst the Jewish people. And they thought themselves to be keepers of the faith, if you will, or, or the authorities of the faith. And they'd made themselves so. Chapter uh, 9, verse 13, picking back up in our reading, says, They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. So here's this man that was formerly blind. And so the neighbors have already asked him about, who is this man? Wasn't it the man that was, that was begging? 
uh, just a short time ago, and some said, no, yeah, that's him. Others said, no, but it kind of looks like him. But the man kept saying, it was me. And they asked him, what would you do? He said, this man, he spit on the ground, he put this mud in my eyes and told me to go wash, and I did, and I came back and I could see. So verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees. Now on the Sabbath, now it was the Sabbath day on which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Aha, there's the problem, right? There's the problem. You see, the Pharisees had taken the day of rest of Sabbath so far that if you winked an eye, they might try to hold you as, as doing some work on the Sabbath. They use that to fall back on it. No man's supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So even healing someone on the Sabbath, spitting on the ground and making mud and putting in someone's eyes, that constituted work and that was a problem for the Pharisees. So they were going to try to uh, condemn him just because he worked on the Sabbath, forgetting about the miracle that he had performed. So there's where our first problem is. And look what it says. It says, verse 15, Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a, a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. He was saying he can't be from God because he's doing work on the Sabbath. That's, that's a stretch, isn't it? It's a long way to go to, to try to make an argument against a miracle that just took place. But this is where they're starting to hang their hat. He's on, he did this on the Sabbath. He cannot be from God. But there's a problem. And the problem is that they have this star witness. The star witness is the man who, who received sight. You see, to him, it's very, very simple what happened. And they're going to keep asking him over and over again. Back in verse 8, it says, The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And he, they ask him, and he says, I'm the one. It's not someone like me, it's me. He told me to do this, and I went and did it, and now I can see. And the Pharisees are asking him. They call them, him to, uh, before them and say, what happened is, how can you see? And he says, this man, he put this stuff in my eyes, and I went and washed, now I can see. You see a pattern here, don't you? The Pharisees question him again. Look down at verse 17. It says, they, they said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Wow. Now they got another problem. Now they got another problem of this man recognizing that someone here has power. You know, a prophet means one sent from God. And so for him to call him a prophet, now they've got another problem. There's a man recognizing the power that Jesus Christ had. So the Pharisees, so they say, okay, let's question his parents. Look in verse 18. The Jews therefore did not believe it, um, believe it of him, and, they, and uh, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son whom you saw born blind? Then how is it that he sees? So if a man claims to be born blind, what better source to go to than his parents? And ask them, is he really blind? Is he truly blind since birth? And they said that he was. 
Verse 20, his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and this, he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. I want to talk about their motivation in just a moment, we'll come back to that. But the Pharisees, have his neighbors have questioned him, the people who knew him, the Pharisees have questioned him time and again. Now they've questioned his parents. Now they're going to question him again. Look down at verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. That whereas I was blind, now I see. And that's what we'll, the title of this lesson. I was blind and now I see. Isn't that a beautiful way to sum up what's happening here? I was blind and now I see. I don't know if this man's a sinner. I don't know what you might think of this man. I don't know why you're asking me these questions. I was blind and now I see. Verse 26. They said to therefore to him, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. And you do not want to hear it again, or why do you want to hear it again? You not, do not want to become a disciple of him too, do you? That's a pointed question, isn't it? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he has come from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone, um, anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard of that, that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see, this man, in, in the simple act of his eyes being opened, he's come to some truths on that, hasn't he? Now, understand something about this, and this is a, um, important in, in reading and understanding Scripture. Beginning in verse um, 30 and other places, this blind man, who, who, this man who was formerly blind, is quoted. And he says some things. And he says down there in verse uh, 31, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does the will of him, he hears him. So there's some, there's some wisdom in his testimony that he's given here, but let's, let's be sure to understand that when you see someone who's quoted, it's not necessarily the words of God, is it? He's speaking some truths. He's saying some things. But we have to be very careful about assigning that every word in here is God's word. Because sometimes men are quoted in God's word, isn't, it? isn't, that, isn't that the case? So when we look to, to quote this man and it says down there that um, God does not hear sinners, we kind of have to ask ourselves some questions about that, don't we? In fact, he does. And if you look at the second part of that, he gets it right. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, then God hears him. Think about a couple of examples. Think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Remember, Ethiopian eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And as he was coming back, he's reading from Isaiah. And God tells Philip to go there and, and to talk with him about Jesus. Was Philip a member of the, of the Lord's church, a member of the kingdom, before Philip came and talked to him? No. He had to be converted, didn't he? So when he says there that, that um, God does not hear sinners, how else do we come into the kingdom? Think about Cornelius. Remember what's said about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, that he was a very devout man. And he gave alms, and he says there specifically that he prayed to God often. What was he praying for? Well, it seems that how the events unfold is that he was praying for um, salvation. And as Peter comes to him and tells him about Jesus Christ, then they are baptized and they are brought into the kingdom. Before that, he was outside the kingdom. Let's be very careful about Scripture when it quotes other men who aren't wholly inspired men. But we can see some truths in the things that, that are being said. And we can decipher and pull out of here what the will of God is. And what the will of God is, is that anyone fearing God and does His will, He hears Him. That is indeed right. If we are seeking after God, He hears us. There's some wisdom in his testimony. One thing we also want to draw out of this is the, there's, a, there's a threat that, that's, that's throughout this, um, this passage here. If you go back up to verse 22, it says there, His parents said this. Now remember, his parents said he was born blind. Um, we don't know about this other man, how he became to make him well so he can see but you need to go ask him. He's of age. Verse 22 says, His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. You see, there's a, there's a threat that's, that's going out. That if anyone is glomming on, is anyone becoming a disciple of Christ, they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue. If you look over in verse 34, after the, they'd questioned this man a couple of times and tried to get him to, to say something that, that wasn't true, verse 34 says, They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. And they put him out. So the threat was real. And the threat manifested. He wouldn't tell them what they wanted to hear. In fact, he was telling them the opposite of what they wanted to hear. And as a result, they were put out, he was put out of the synagogue. That's important in understanding something about the culture of the day. That for Jews to go along with Jesus Christ, it was a dangerous thing. We talked in our class this morning, our class about Peter, about the culmination of this threat, how... Jesus was ready to be, was, was standing trial for his life, and the mob mentality was taking over. And this fear rose to such a point where they're getting ready to put Jesus to death. And that's why we see Peter denying that, he's even, that he even knows Jesus Christ. So the threat was real, and it was a reason for them, under these circumstances, it would have been understandable, not right, but understandable, that he might lie about it. 
but he didn't. He held to what he saw, and he held to what he believed. So what does this mean? There's other things that we can draw out of this, but there's some, some application we can make here towards the end. Look in verse 35. As this is, has transpired and this man has been put out of the synagogue, says verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, or, or the temple, that this is in Jerusalem, this is happening, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus has heard that they had put him out, and he comes to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, and whom is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now, <laughs> Think about, again, put, your, put yourself in his shoes. Um, we can read into this. Some, maybe he didn't recognize who this was talking to him. He probably recognized his voice, wouldn't you think? Certainly when we, our, one of our senses is, is gone, the other's heightened. We hear that, right? But this, he asked him, who is the Son of Man? And he answers, I, I, I don't know. Who is it that I might believe in him? And look what Jesus says in verse 37. You have both seen him... And he is the one who is talking with you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, you have seen him. Remember, this man had been born blind. Now his eyes are open. Now Jesus is standing in front of him and talking to him. And he, and he so subtly makes mention of the fact that this man can now see. And who is it that he's seeing? He's seeing the Lord. He's seeing the Son of Man standing before him. And he's also talking to him. In verse 38, it says, And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You see, for this, for this blind man, we see a faith established, don't we? To this point, it had just been a simple matter of this man put this on my eyes, and I went and washed it off, and now I can see. Now he realizes, as Jesus comes to him and engages him, he realizes who this is. And so we see a faith uh, uh, established in this man because of the events that took place. The other side of that is, and what's so interesting about all this, is that we see the blindness of the Pharisees. You see, they, back there they said that, you know, we come from Moses. We believe in the prophet Moses. Back in verse 34, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. You see the haughtiness? You see the holier than thou? Who are you to tell us about this? We are the Pharisees. We are chosen of God. But Jesus corrects them. Verse 39, and Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who, may, uh, those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. See how Jesus is turning this on them. See, because you say you see, because you think that you know everything about God's will, you indeed are blind. You're going to remain in your sins. This other man who has come out of blindness 
and can now see. This is the one who realizes who's standing in front of him. This is Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the one whom God had prophesied about. This is the one who was going to be the savior of Israel and the savior of the world. And this blind man, this one man who once was blind, sees and recognizes that, while these Pharisees are blinded to it. Which brings us to, really, the application of, of us and everyone else going forward. In your Bibles, you probably have there at the end of verse 41, um, a break, and it goes into chapter 10. But if you see that it says, Truly, verse 1 of chapter 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door or the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. You see, this is actually a continuation of the conversation. You come over to verse 19, and we can kind of understand that. It says, There arose a division among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not um, the sayings of a demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And with that really ends this conversation. So the first part of chapter 10 is really a continuation of this conversation that Jesus is having. And in this chapter 10, we, we recognize this. You probably have a heading there. Mine says the parable of the good shepherd. So he's teaching this on the heels of what has just taken place. And he talks about that he is the good shepherd. And we know the parable well, how the thieves come in from another way. But the good shepherd, he is not a thief. He's not a hireling. He loves his sheep and the sheep love him. And the teaching there is that the, the sheep will know his name. And it goes back to these Pharisees who didn't recognize who Jesus was or didn't want to. But the truth of the matter is Jesus is the good shepherd. And if you come over to verse 16, it says, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they shall hear my voice and become one flock with the shepherd. He's speaking there of the Gentiles that will be brought into the fold as well. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my, my life of my own initiative. He talks about how the shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. And what does it all mean? Come back to verse 10. The thief comes of chapter 10. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. See, the upshot for us is that through Jesus Christ, through the Good Shepherd, we can have abundant life. These of this time could too, if they would believe in Him and be converted. Have their eyes opened to who Jesus Christ was, as this blind man did. And recognize that He's the Good Shepherd. And recognize that they can have abundant life. And we can have that kind of life too. If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe the one who is standing in front of us. We don't see him physically, but we see him through God's word. We see him through other eyes of people who did see him. And we recognize and understand who he is. And that's where our faith lies. That is the foundation of our faith, and believing in who Jesus Christ is, having our eyes open to him. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to think about this story here 
about this man who had his eyes open to who Jesus Christ was. Our eyes can be open to that same thing today. Through reading the Word of God and understanding and seeing who Jesus Christ is. And once we do, we believe in Him, we repent of our sins, and we confess to all the world that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. Then we are candidate for baptism. Then we do come into the kingdom. Then we are a child of God. We put on Christ. And we come up out of those waters of baptism, a new creature, a member of the kingdom, a child of God. And we continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, as it says there in Acts chapter 2, as those did. Loving one another, encouraging one another, setting our life apart to live in service to God and hope that we are found faithful in the end. And we will be if we hold to those things and practice the things that that God has shown us through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to become a child of God. If as a child of God you've, you've lost your way, if your eyes are growing dim, have your eyes open again and understanding who Jesus Christ is. Make the necessary corrections in your life. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.